name is Mark. I'm one of the pastors at Redeemer Rockwall, and it's a delight to be with you again. I was here a couple of months ago, and uh, it was nice to be welcomed back, and so thank you for having me here today. Our sermon passage will come from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 14. I invite those who are willing and able to stand for the reading of God's holy word. Hear the word of the Lord. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let us pray. Almighty and merciful Father, we pray that your spirit will bless the reading, the preaching, and the hearing of your word. That the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts will be pleasing in your sight. Grant us the grace to repent our sins and obey the gospel. Grant us the grace to hear the word of God, to receive it planted in us humbly. And as the word is planted in us, we pray that you will cause it to take root and grow and bear much fruit. For the glory of God and the good of the church, we pray. Amen. Like John the Baptist, my late Uncle John also spent time in prison, not for preaching the gospel, but for armed robbery and some other things. And it was while he was doing time that he met Jesus and decided to change his life and clean up his act. When he got out of prison, he moved out to West Texas and started painting for a living. He told us lots and lots of cool stories about places he had painted, places he had worked, things he saw. He was a great storyteller. And once he told me and my younger brother a story about how he had won a bid to paint a church out in West Texas, an old country church far outside town. And he decided to get on the job right away. 
And he realized that the day was wearing on and he was running low on paint. So as he was running out of daylight, running out of paint, he had a decision to make. Go all the way back into town and try to get back before sundown. But then he also noticed a thunderstorm brewing on the horizon. So he's caught between a rock and a hard place and decided that since he didn't have time to beat the storm or sunset by going back into town and coming back again, he would simply add water to the paint so he could finish the job. He said that as he was putting the finishing touches on that old country church, the sky ripped open and the rain poured down and washed the last coats of that freshly painted church off down to the ground. And as he was watching the paint bleed down the side of the building, he heard a voice from heaven say, Big John, repaint and thin no more. (laughs) I'm sure most of that is true. (laughs) Well, it is my hope and prayer that in some way we will also hear a voice from heaven today speaking to us by the Spirit and the Word of God into our hearts. When I was here last time, I preached on the conception of John the Baptist. That was during Advent. So it is only fitting now that I have an opportunity to preach here again, to preach on the execution of John the Baptist during Lent. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. When we first met John, he was just a fetus developing in his mother's womb. He leapt for joy at the sound of Mary's voice in the presence of Jesus, who was just a zygote in Mary's womb at the time. John's spiritual formation took place in the desert. And out there, like an eremitic monk, he prepared himself body and soul for the ministry. John stood at the water's edge and preached the message of repentance for forgiveness of sins. Like ancient Israel, the people John preached to needed to stop wandering around in their wilderness to cross the Jordan and to start a new life in the promised land. John the Baptist preached penitent sinners to come to him and receive baptism. And he baptized them with water from the Jordan because like Naaman the leper, the people were unclean and needed to be thoroughly washed and cleansed of their sins. John's mission was to prepare the people for the coming of the Lord Jesus. He was the voice of the Lord that broke the long dark silence that had lingered and endured for some 400 years. When he crossed the Jordan River in the power of the Spirit, he called others to follow him into the promises of God. He turned people back from worshiping idols, the idols of the world, and from serving the gods of money, sex, and power. He turned the hearts of fathers to the children and the hearts of children back to the fathers. He called ordinary folks to stop limping and wavering between two sides. He taught his followers to fast and to pray. John spoke truth to power. He squared off against the proud and corrupt religious leaders of his day. 
He stood up to wannabe kings and queens and called them to turn from their sins. He preached repentance for the forgiveness of sins to any and all who would hear him. In short, John's message to one and all was simply this. Change your life and clean up your act. And he preached this just like all the prophets of God who came before him. Ezekiel the prophet preached, Thus declares the Lord, When a wicked person turns from his wickedness that he has committed and does what is just and right, he shall save his life. Why? Because he sees the truth and turns away from all the transgressions that he has committed. He shall surely live. He shall not die. I will judge everyone according to his ways. So repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest crooked guilt be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. In other words, change your life and clean up your act. Joel, the prophet, also preached repentance, first to the clergy, then to the laity. To the clergy, he said, put on sackcloth and lament, O priest, wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God. Alas, for the day of the Lord is near. And then to the laity, he says, the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with lamenting, and rend your hearts, not your garments. So whether you are a priest, a pastor, or a parishioner, the message of the prophets is the same. Change your life and clean up your act. And this is what I meant by John the Baptist preached repentance and forgiveness just like all the prophets of God who came before him. John was the one of the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. He preached repentance with fire in his bones, tears in his eyes, and love in his heart. He preached the good news of salvation. Not like some wild-eyed, sweaty-toothed madman, but like a tough-skinned and tender-hearted prophet of God, speaking the truth in love as the voice of God to the people. He wanted his hearers to turn away from their sins and be saved. And what was this good news of salvation that he was preaching? He preached, repent and be baptized. Another way to say that is, change your ways and clean up your act. Why? Because Christ is almost here. The Lord is drawing near. The Savior is coming. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world is coming your way. So John opened his mouth and preached repentance for the forgiveness of sins. In the spirit and the power of Elijah the prophet. But take note that not everyone responded to John's gospel preaching in the same way. 
Some obeyed, others disobeyed. Some repented, others resisted. Ordinary, tax collectors, soldiers, troublemakers, the marginalized were all moved by his preaching. And they asked him, what must we do to change our lives and clean up our act? And he told them. Religious leaders were troubled by his preaching and asked, Who do you think you are? And politicians were offended by his preaching and asked, What can we do to silence his voice and shut him down? If nothing else, no one ignored John or disregarded his message. With exhortations, with preaching, with Declarations of truth, John preached the good news to the people, even to rulers in high places. No one was spared, no one was exempt. But the question is, if all John was doing was preaching the good news, how in the world did he end up in prison? Is the good news that dangerous? How did he end up on the chopping block? Is the good news that offensive? And that brings us to the heart of our story and sermon passage today. Herod the Tetrarch was a son of Herod the Great, the king that ordered the slaughter of the infants when Jesus was born. Herod Jr. was not so great. He was a ruler over one-fourth of Judah, but he was never granted the title of king. But he definitely wanted to make Herod great again. This wannabe king had a reputation for being wicked and godless. John confronted the way Herod John confronted Herod the way that Elijah the prophet had confronted Ahab, boldly and openly, not in private, but in public. And here's why: because public sin requires public rebuke. Now, everyone knew that like King Solomon, Herod had married the daughter of a nearby foreign king. To add insult to injury, he had also had an affair with his stepbrother's wife. And he ended up divorcing the foreign king's daughter in order to marry his stepbrother's wife. And to make matters even worse, he even fantasized over her daughter who was his niece. And so you see in this chain of events in the story, Herod the Tetrarch is breaking God's law in many ways. And like a true prophet of God, John the Baptist shows up as a covenant prosecutor to point it all out. What were Herod's sins among the other evils he did? Was he really all that bad? Well, he coveted his brother's wife. He committed adultery. He rejected God's word. He imprisoned God's prophet. He resisted God's spirit. He feared man, not God. He lusted after his niece. He swore oaths in haste. He hardened his heart in pride. He lived with worldly regret. He refused to repent. Herod reminds me of some presidents that I've known and seen in my lifetime. I don't have time to talk about Clinton. 
or Trump at this time. The point is that John went where no priest or prophet had ever gone before, especially in the life of Herod the Tetrarch. He delved into Herod's private life. He meddled in his personal affairs. He looked into his heart and exposed his soul. He preached truth to power and called that wannabe king to change his life and clean up his act. So John is doing more here than simply stepping on Herod's toes. He is shining light on his sin and he is thrusting the sword of the spirit into Herod's conscience. He condemned Herod's sins, called him to repentance because he wants Herod to change so that he might be saved. And Herod takes personal offense at all of this. Unlike the crowds who had asked, what must I do when they heard John's preaching? Herod took offense and was defensive. And the scripture says he added this to all the other evil he committed. That he locked up John in prison. And you know why? Because contrary to the rhyme we all learned when we were kids... It turns out that sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can also hurt me. John's goal was not to hurt the ruler, but to help him. So keep in mind that when John came preaching, the scriptures do not say that John came preaching hellfire and brimstone. They say that he came preaching the good news of repentance For the forgiveness of sins. He called Herod and his family to turn away from the unholy trinity of money, sex, and power that they undoubtedly worshipped and served. He wanted them to turn away in order to receive the forgiveness of their sins. So that they too could prepare the way for the Lord in their life. So John did not preach in order to condemn Herod, but in order to save Herod. He went there. He touched the third rail. His religion shaped his politics. And he ended up losing his head for it. Because Herod and his family refused to change their life and clean up their act. As the prophets say, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. Now, I don't know how long each of you have been involved with the Christian church. But if you're like me, you've been around long enough to notice that, depending where you are, you might not hear much about repentance. You might not hear much about the need to repent or the need to change your ways perhaps as much as previous generations did. Here in the 21st century, we hear lots and lots about tolerance and acceptance, but not about repentance and obedience. We hear lots and lots about affirmation, not reformation. We hear lots and lots about transitioning, but not about transforming. But things were not always like this. At the start of the Reformation in the 16th century, Martin Luther insisted that all of life is repentance. 
All of life is repentance. It is an ongoing and continuous endeavor for everyone who follows Jesus Christ. And if that is true, and we believe it is true, then as a pastor, I must ask you, what are you doing to change your life and clean up your act? What are you giving up or what are you taking on in order to prepare the way for the Lord in your life? What are you putting to death or what are you bringing to life in your heart and soul as you pursue repentance? Or as one pastor asked a group of us at a gathering one time, what are you repenting of these days? It might help us to know what repentance is. In the 17th century, the Westminster Divines described repentance in this way. Repentance unto life as a saving grace, whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, does with grief and hatred of his sin, Turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. Not a bad way to describe repentance. A turning from yourself and your sin, a a turning towards your Savior and His salvation. In other words, repentance is not just about feeling bad over your sin. It's also about feeling good about the mercy of God. It's not just a matter of committing less and less sins. It is also a matter of becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. It's about changing your life and cleaning up your act and conforming to the image of Jesus. Now, you might be the kind of person who thinks, I have repented already, and I don't need to repent anymore. Or you might think that you have repented enough to get by. You've repented enough to cover your tracks, enough so that no one really notices your sins. Or maybe you think, I have repented enough to get into heaven I'm done with repentance. But I want to impress upon you the truth that whatever repenting you have done and whatever repenting you are doing, you have only barely scratched the surface of repentance. We all have room to grow. We all have things to change. We all have things to do in order to change our life and clean up our act. And these are things we do in the daily grind of the real world. So here are some things I want you to consider in light of God's law. What do you need to repent of? Well, let me ask you a few questions. Do you have any other idols or gods in your life, even functional ones? Flee idolatry. Guard your heart against the counterfeit trinity of money, sex, and power. Don't set your hopes on functional idols like America. 
or a president or the military or the economy or a party. Set your hopes on the Lord God alone. Use your money to do good. Use your power to help others. And use your influence to make things better in the world. Do you ever take God's name in vain? And I'm not talking about simply cursing. If you're a baptized Christian, God has put his name on you. You need to remember who you are and whose you are. So that everywhere you go, you're not simply representing yourself with your expressive individualism. Everywhere you go, you are representing the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. To take God's name in vain would be to live against or contrary to your baptismal vows. Do you keep the Sabbath holy? We've got to stop treating the Lord's Day like another ordinary day to do whatever we please. We need to start treating the Lord's Day like the holy day that it is. A gift of grace to worship and rest. Grace to meet the Lord at his table. Grace to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ and his victory over sin and death. To treat the Lord's day and his service as top priority in life. As a bounden duty, a holy obligation, a sacred right and responsibility. To remember that worship is life. Everything else is just details. Do you murder? Well, of course not. I've never murdered anyone. But do you call people idiot and fool and moron and worse? In that sense, you're assassinating the image of God in them. So do whatever you can to preserve the life, preserve the reputation of others. Don't take a life or destroy it. Don't use your anger to curse. Don't use hateful words or ugly looks to wreck and ruin others. Do you commit adultery? In your heart, with your desires, with your lusts? The scriptures say, honor true marriage between one man and one woman. Don't be fooled by counterfeits. Don't be fooled by same-sex mirage. Keep your marriage bed holy. And remember, it is the most holy place of your home. It is the holy of holies in your house. Strive for fidelity in your marriage and support it in the marriages of others. Stay away from pornography and anything that looks like pornography. Strive for purity of heart in all of your relationships. And stay away from people and places that would tear apart what God has joined together. Do you steal? Do you rob God with your tithes and offerings? Do you cheat on your taxes? Do you withhold giving to the poor? We're told in Scripture to give our first fruits to the Lord, not our leftovers. To practice generosity with our best, not our worst. To give our most, not our least. Because remember this, it is more blessed to give than receive. And God loves a cheerful giver. So give generously with grace in your heart 
not with grudges. Do you bear false witness? Do you lie? Just those little lies. Not necessarily the big lies, but even those. Always tell the truth, even if your voice shakes. Always tell the truth, even if it costs you your pride or your position. Tell the truth. Do you covet? You find yourself wrestling with discontentment. You're dissatisfied with life. Pursue contentment in all things. Godliness with contentment is great gain. So cultivate a heart of gratitude for whatever the Lord has entrusted to your care. Don't let any bitter root of ingratitude take hold in your life. Thank God daily for your house, your spouse, your career, your children, your work, your income, your car, your toys, your things, your health. Whatever it is, guard your spirit against envy, discontentment, and greed. So in light of God's law that we just heard, now do any of you see the need to repent, to practice repentance, to see that in all of life repentance is necessary? These are not gotcha statements that I just mentioned. These are gracious reminders that we all have room to change for the better in our love for God and in our love for our neighbor. But I imagine as a pastor who has been down this road before that some of you hear this sort of thing and now you went from feeling joyful to feeling gloomy. You feel heavy hearted and you wonder about your guilt and your sorrow. You might even despair. You might go through that list of the law of God and say, wow, I have totally messed up. Certainly God must be disgusted with me. Certainly God must be dissatisfied with me. And it would be easy to feel that way if all we had was the law of God. But remember the gospel is repent for the forgiveness of sins. Why? Because the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world has come near. You can change your life and clean up your act because of grace. Not because of works or law. It is God's kindness that leads us to repentance. God does not want anyone to perish. He wants everyone to repent and be saved. He even rejoices in the presence of angels in heaven whenever a sinner repents. This delights him to see us turn back and trust his son to change our life and clean up our act. Now, I know that change can be hard and it can even seem impossible. And if it were not for the presence of the spirit in our life, it would be impossible. For with God, nothing is impossible. Nothing is too hard with him. In the 14th century, Archbishop of the Church, Gregory Palamas, said this about repentance in a sermon. He says, Repentance, which is true and truly from the heart, persuades the penitent negatively 
not to sin anymore, not to mix with corrupt people, and not to gaze in curiosity at evil pleasures, but positively to despise things present, cling to things to come, struggle against passions, seek after virtues, and be self-controlled in every respect, keep vigil with prayers to God, and shun dishonest gain. I say all this because I don't want any of you to leave here today feeling afraid to repent. I would much rather you leave feeling afraid not to repent. I want you to be afraid of not changing your life and cleaning up your act. And here's why. Because repentance is good for your soul. Not only does it lead you to getting your sins blotted out, erased, forgiven, and forgotten, but it also leads to times of spiritual refreshment for you from the presence of the Lord. And ultimately, that is the motivation for changing your life and cleaning up your act. Not because of how it will make you appear in the eyes of others around you or even in your own eyes, but because of how it will make you appear in the eyes of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, let us pray. O God, you are gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and you relent over disaster. We humbly ask you to have compassion on our infirmities and to give us the constant assistance of your Holy Spirit that we may be effectually restrained from sin and incited to our duty. Imprint upon our hearts such a dread of your judgments and such a grateful sense of your goodness to us as may make us both afraid and ashamed to offend you. And above all, keep in our minds a lively remembrance of that great day in which we must give a strict account of our thoughts, words, and actions to him whom you have appointed the judge of the quick and the dead, your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.